Well, thank you, Joy, for reading God's Word for us. And good morning, everyone. Um, as Bill said, my name is Dan Spino. I'm one of the pastoral fellows on staff at Christ Community. <laughs> thank you, Corinne. And uh, uh, it's my joy to be with you here this morning. My wife, Stephanie, and I have been in the Kansas City area as part of Christ Community for a year and a half now. Um, and we've loved our time serving in the church, meeting so many of you, serving alongside you, worshiping with you. And we've loved our time in Kansas City as well. It's a really great city, um, except for one thing that we really don't like at all, and that's the traffic around here. And it's not so much the traffic as much as the way people drive. Um, I don't want to open up that can of worms, so I know that that can be a little emotional and controversial. So instead, we're going to talk about conspiracies today. So how about that? And as a culture, we love conspiracies, right? It's as true yesterday as it is today. For example, how many shooters were involved in the JFK assassination, right? What about Elvis? Is Elvis really dead? Or, or Tupac? Is Tupac dead? Is, does anyone really know where uh, Jimmy Hoffa's body is found? Or who Tupac is, the guy that I just referenced a few seconds ago? <laughs> I know who he is. That's why I put it in there. <laughs> what about the Indianapolis Colts? Did they throw the whole season last year so they can get the number one draft pick and get Andrew Luck? Right? There's some conspiracy there as well. More recently, there's Hostess. Hostess has been in the news. I don't know if you guys heard anything about Hostess, but the claim against Hostess is that this has just been a huge marketing ploy. This, this pending bankruptcy and um, liquidation of all their assets has been this huge marketing ploy to sell more Twinkies and cupcakes. That's what people suggest. There's, we're always questioning the truth. We're always questioning what are we hearing? What, what's really going on behind the story? My favorite conspiracy actually involves a little city uh, in southwestern United States. In 1947, it's, it's believed that a UFO actually landed in a farm field not too far away from Roswell, New Mexico. Now, soon after the first reports of this UFO landing, the United States Air Force came forward and said, no, it wasn't a UFO, it was just a weather balloon. In fact, they even had some artifacts at this news conference uh, 60 plus years ago saying it was a weather balloon. Yet, <laughs> people in Roswell don't believe that. I had the, it's, it's one of my favorite conspiracies because I actually had the joy of driving through this city one time. And uh, a friend of mine were driving across the country, and we stopped in Roswell. We were stopping in all these random places uh, in the United States, and Roswell was one. Um, and we, got, we were at a convention. Uh, I don't know how we ended up there. We were at some convention. We got to meet um, some interesting people. For example, there was one lady who told us that she was abducted several times, and um, since then, she's actually have gone through very uh, intrusive and extensive testing by the United States government on her mind and on her body. Um, and then the government, of course, just lets her live and tell these stories. There's also another guy who said that he was abducted several times. And don't worry, there are some good aliens out there and some bad ones. Um, there's actually different races of aliens. Uh, my favorite part, though, is walking down the streets. I mean, this, this society is so just enwrapped in this conspiracy. It's everywhere. We were walking down the streets, and the gas lamps were in the shape of alien heads. Uh, I thought it was the most bizarre thing. And you're just left wondering, was there really a UFO? And was this just some sort of government cover-up, uh, this weather balloon story that they are putting forth? We like to question reality. That's what we do in our culture. We like to find out what's really going on behind the story. Who's at work? Whose hands are involved? And, and what's really going on? 
The word conspiracy itself often has a negative meaning, but really if you look it up, it doesn't have to have just a negative connotation to it. There's actually a wide range of meaning. For example, it could simply be to seem to be working together to bring about a particular result. Um, It could be a plot or a plan of conspiring. Some related words include to engineer, to scheme, or to be in harmony. Conspiracies intrigue us. We like to question what's really going on. Well, there's another conspiracy that we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks, as Bill has already alluded to in our, in our Advent series. And it doesn't involve UFOs or Twinkies or, or dead celebrities. No, this conspiracy is so much greater. It is a conspiracy of love. And this conspiracy is described to us in Romans chapter 8, what some have called the richest chapter in all the Bible. The letter to the Romans was written by uh, the Apostle Paul, who, of course, is led in his writing by the Holy Spirit. And in this book, Paul pens a beautiful letter that is really argumentative and and almost legal-sounding as you read through it. It just, each chapter just seems to build on on each other. What's come before it just keeps building and building. And he essentially is building the case that all of us, every one of us, are sinners. And we're in the need of a Savior. Not just any Savior, though, but one particular Savior, a Savior who could actually satisfy the wrath of God and who could free us from the death that we deserve. And here we are in Romans 8, which just sounds off like the theological apex of his argument. Everything has built to this chapter. And it's in Romans 8 that this conspiracy of love is revealed to us, the story behind the Christmas story. But before we get into Romans 8, let me open us in a word of prayer as we start to look at God's word. Lord, we ask for your continual blessings on our time this morning. Be the lamp to our hearts. Help us to receive your truths and to continue to grow in our relationship with you. Use this teaching time, Lord, to transform each and every one of us in here. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, spoiler alert, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sorry, I should have given you guys some time to plug your ears. That's, that's, the, that's what is behind the conspiracy. This is the conspiracy revealed. The first verse of Romans 8, Paul just lets it out there. He says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the conspiracy revealed. Christmas means that there's no longer any condemnation. And this is the message that God wants all of his believers, he wants all of us to hear, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And from here, Paul just takes off in Romans 8 uh, from this verse. The word condemnation is a forensic word. It's often associated with one standing before a judge. It's a judicial pronouncement upon a guilty person associated with punishment and penalty. It means to declare to be reprehensible, wrong, or evil. So Paul then is saying that there is no guilty charge, no declaration of punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as straightforward as that is, this message is a message that we all struggle with. But why? Why do we struggle receiving this free ticket away from condemnation? For those that walk in the Spirit, for those that claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior, there's no condemnation. None. There was condemnation. There was a guilty charge. Jesus took care of it for us. But instead of being set free, 
by this reality. We either hold ourselves as slaves to sin or we hold ourselves in bondage to guilt and shame. They're ugly prison guards that are just standing there at the door wanting to hold us as prisoners. And we end up trapped. And the amazing thing is, is that God sees us trapped as well. He sees us trapped in our sin. He sees us held hostage to our sinfulness. He gives us this law that is meant to show us godly living and show us how to approach him on his terms, this beautiful God, how we can approach him. But instead, our flesh sees this law and sees it as restrictive and sees it as something that we want to rebel against. And instead of it being beautiful, it's, we, we are led to sin. We fight against what is good and do the things that we don't want to do, Paul earlier says in this letter. And then the guilt and the shame kick in. And we are trapped. We're pinned down by the weights of sin that we should not be carrying. And how does God respond? his answer is crazy at best. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll take on flesh. I will present myself to my creation in sinful flesh, not as some victorious superhero, but as a baby born in the humblest of circumstances, born to a, a teenage virgin in some random stable. And this is utterly ridiculous, right? I mean, we need a superhero we're like that documentary, appropriately tired. We're waiting for Superman. <laughs> and God says, have this baby instead. A baby. The prison that is called condemnation with the doors locked is about to bust open by a baby. A baby who will grow up in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet will be without sin. And he will show us a new way of interpreting the law. In fact, he'll institute a new law, a law of grace. A law that is free and can never be earned. All of our best efforts will be put to shame. It's ironic, the shame that we feel from our sin leads us to trying to do more efforts, yet it's through this offering of grace that these efforts themselves are put to shame. And this man who models godly living for us will then take the sins of the world and he'll put them to death. In fact, he'll look at death itself and say, even you, death, shall not have victory. The guilt and the shame that we feel, the wrath of God that we're storing up in our sinful state, and ultimately the death that we deserve will be put to death on the cross. And in its stead, through a victorious resurrection, is life. And we likewise receive and take part in this same victory when we are in Christ Jesus. And as true as that is, <laughs> this conspiracy of love was planned before all time. God created us. And though we are surprised at our capability of sin, though we are surprised at the bondage of guilt and shame, God is never surprised. Though we find ourselves scrambling, God says you don't need to do that. He knew from the beginning what his plan was. It's like he leans in and gives us one of those sounds, and then he says, I got this one. <laughs> Trust me. A baby, a baby born in the manger in the worst of circumstances. Pure humility and humbleness writ large. God made man in the like of sinful flesh. The love conspiracy is revealed, Christmas Day established. But instead of wrapping up a new iPad or the keys to a new car or even a gift certificate to your favorite store, God wraps up freedom. 
Freedom from condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is no more. Because of Christmas, God says here in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation. None. Paul then takes the next three verses uh, to explain this. There's no condemnation because Jesus took, took it on for us. As, as one author writes, he was for us in the place of condemnation. We are in him where all condemnation has spent its force. Condemnation was taken on by Jesus and satisfied. There's now no condemnation, no disapproval, no sentencing, no guilt, no shame, no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. And instead of condemnation, Paul says, the spirit of life has set us free. It's in being in the spirit and walking according to the spirit that life and peace can be had. Freedom is the exact opposite of condemnation. Condemnation is a prison. Freedom sets you free. It's the opposite of being hostile towards God, the opposite of death. It is a life of freedom. I mean, does anyone in here not want freedom? I don't mean the freedom to say what you want to say or to vote for who you want to vote for or to believe what you want to believe, the, the kind of freedoms that our country espouses, but freedom from the oppression of guilt and shame, freedom from condemnation, freedom from all that weighs us down and holds us back, freedom from the expectations that we place on ourselves to achieve the perfection that we keep striving for. But if we are free then why do we let guilt and shame still have power over us? I mean, we get the cross. Most of us do, right? We get that Jesus has conquered the sins of the world. (laughs) Yet we still live shrouded in guilt and shame. Why? This is the wrestling match that many of us find ourselves in. We've been set free, but we don't live as if we've actually been set free. These old patterns are hard to break. A life steeped in guilt and shame is hard to completely erase with the immediacy that is required. It's hard for us to completely embrace the freedom that Christ gives us. I mean, where else in our society do we get such a beautiful gift? I mean, we see ads on the TV or we see ads in a newspaper and we question, this is too good to be true, right? We're always questioning. Our affection for conspiracies is built off of questioning reality. Certainly, there must be a catch. And we treat the gospel the same way. And for some of you, this guilt and shame is only reinforced by other people in your life that are either telling you or making you feel this way. They put unfair baggage on your back, and you carry it. Instead of heeding the warning that just echoes through the airport, I mean, if you're in the airport, you hear it at least once. This bag is not yours. Don't pick it up. (laughs) When someone hands you a bag that doesn't belong to you, you, you pick it up, and you actually carry it. Those bags are not for you. They don't belong to you. You are free. It's a once and for all time act that Christ has accomplished for you. You don't deserve it. None of us do. You didn't earn it. We can't. And it seems too good to be true, but it is. It is a conspiracy. God is out to get you. (laughs) He loves you. He wants to restore a relationship with you. And together, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are hunting you down to set you free. If other people want to shame you or make you feel guilty, know this. The problem's not you. It's them. They're the ones that are the problem. You have been set free. That old self doesn't exist. You've been crucified with Christ, and now you are free. Why? Why? 
because God declares it to be true. God, the ruler over all creation, declares it as such. Over all reality, he looks at you and he says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I look at you with perfection and with great joy through the eyes of Jesus. Now be free and live. As far as the east is from the west, that is how far God has removed your transgressions. He's taken them and he's put them behind his back. And we keep approaching them with him and he says, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Why do you keep bringing these things up? You are free. Freedom. Freedom from condemnation. Just the thought of it, just mentioning it, makes me want to take a deep breath. It's just so relieving. Hear these words. Close your eyes and hear these words from God. <laughs> you are free in Christ. There is no more condemnation. Now we can all forget that New Year's resolution to lose 10 pounds. We've just dropped the dead weight of guilt and shame. And it is freeing. <laughs> and what's startling is to receive this gift, to receive this, we, absolutely, we do absolutely nothing. <laughs> we cannot earn this freedom. We just receive it as a token of our faith and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. Imagine yourself walking into a courtroom knowing full well that you are guilty. And the judge knows that you are guilty. He's not blind. He sees everything. He doesn't even need a jury to convict you. He knows you're guilty. So into the courtroom you enter, awaiting your sentencing. And you have your defense ready, right? I mean, you're ready to tell him all the great things. You've tithed every Sunday. You've, you've worked at the soup kitchen on the weekends. You, the neighbor that's a jerk, you've actually raked his yard and shoveled his driveway. I mean, you've done some really good things. <laughs> but the judge looks at you and he says, nice try but I've seen what you've done. And then he continues, but before I give you your sentence, let me ask you this question. Do you love me? Do you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you have faith in what he has done and who he is? And how do you respond to that question? Answering yes is all that is required to receive the free pass. No condemnation. Not a fake yes, but an honest, heartfelt yes. And this is life in the Spirit. This is, as Paul says here in Romans 8, life and peace. This is living. And this is the conspiracy that God has planned for all of us. If only. If only we would receive, believe, and obey. In the opening verses of this book, of Romans, Paul says that the charge of the apostles is to teach obedience of faith and to preach the gospel. And that's what he's doing here in Romans chapter 8. And this is the message that we all need to hear every day. But Paul then, in the rest of these verses, he takes a stick and he just draws a hard line in the sand. And he says, there are two ways that you can answer these questions from the judge. A life entrapped in the flesh, opposed to God, or a life of freedom in the spirit. And he says, they're mutually exclusive. You cannot have both ways. And then he then goes about to, to describe what these two ways look like. And in verses 5 through 8, Paul plays a bit of a ping-pong match in the text. He talks about both living according to the Spirit and living according to the flesh. But as you look at these verses, it's the negative that actually stands out. Living according to the flesh is more prominent, and he presents a life entrapped in the flesh. So what does it mean to live according to the flesh? 
Living according to the flesh is a life that feeds upon sin after sin. Paul explains that this life is a life that involves a mind that is fixed on the flesh or fixed on sinning. And earlier in Romans 1, he gives this amazing description of what this life looks like. He says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, hater of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And earlier he says, claiming to be wise, they become fools. And here he says, in Romans chapter 8, to focus on the flesh is death. To focus on a life of sinning is a life that leads to death. Now granted, we're all going to die someday, but the hope-filled death that we're anticipating is not the kind of death Paul's referring to in these verses. No, he's referring to a life that is on a path to hell. In fact, he says in verses 7 and 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, and it does not submit to God. In fact, he says it cannot submit to God. And ultimately, because those that are so focused on sinning, so focused on feeding only themselves, they cannot please God. There is nothing pleasing to God in these verses. Every person apart from Christ is thoroughly in the grip of the power of sin, says Douglas Moo. Every person apart from Christ is thoroughly in the grip of the power of sin. You cannot both worship God and worship your flesh. You can't serve two masters. You're either in the grip of sin or in the hands of your Savior. And for those that are entrapped in the flesh, those that are entrapped in a sin-filled life, there is indeed condemnation for them. These people, Paul earlier says, are storing up God's wrath that will be poured out on them in the day of judgment. And all of us will one day come face-to-face with the great judge and we'll have to face the facts of our lives. And for people that have their minds set on the flesh, there's going to be condemnation. It's a very sober reminder of the grace that Christ offers to everyone. If only they would heed God's gospel message and trust and believe and fully obey and live a life of obedient faith. Paul takes his readers, he takes us to a very dark place in these few verses here. Look at the language he uses. Hostile to God, not submitting, focusing only on oneself. (laughs) This is indeed a very sad life. This is a life entrapped in the flesh. But Paul doesn't leave his readers there. As somber of a note as this is, Paul then says, but remember, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In verses 9 through 11, Paul then paints the exact opposite picture. He shows us a life that has been set free, a life indwelt by the Spirit, And he uses sharp, contrasting language here in these first verses, verse 9. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Paul is giving them and us an assurance of our faith. As followers of Christ, you are not hostile to God. You do please God, and you can submit to God. 
And having your mind set on the Spirit means life and peace because there's no condemnation. The Spirit works in us and enables us to live according to God's will, not our own. In fact, as Douglas Moo points out again, he says, being in the flesh is not a possibility for the believer. Being in the flesh is not a possibility for the believer. They are mutually exclusive. And having unveiled this great love conspiracy, Paul tells his readers that we now live with the Spirit in us. We are followers of Christ and we have been set free from all that hinders, all that weighs us down and holds us back. There is no guilt. There is no shame. These prison guards no longer have any power over our lives. Christ has set you free. And now we truly live. We live the life that we are meant to live, the the life that God intended for us to live. We live in light of God's present kingdom where God gets done the things that he wants to get done. We live knowing that as his image bearers, he loves us and has not given up on us. We no longer live fearing a wrath that is stored up. Christ has satisfied that wrath for us. It is gone. And in verse 11, Paul points out that life in the Spirit wraps us up with Jesus' life, his life, his death, and his resurrected life. It's a hope-filled promise. Just as Christ is alive today, so too are we alive and will be alive eternally as we obey the message of the gospel. It is by faith alone that we've been saved, not because of our works. God sent his Son to free us. And the Holy Spirit works in our lives so that we can now truly live. We see the triune God working before time as the great conspirators, offering us freedom. Earlier in the book, again, in Romans 6, Paul says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to the sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So now we are alive in the Spirit. We are united with our living King Jesus, Paul says. This means that we are now indwelled by the Spirit. And this is the gift that Jesus gives us. We don't have to wait for a future day to be united with God. We are united with him today, and we can live. And as much as Jesus is alive and living today, so too we should be alive and living today because the triune God has conspired to set us free and to give us life and peace. Because of Jesus, because of Christmas, there is no condemnation. If you think that there is, then... You are making God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit out to be a liar. In another letter that Paul wrote in Galatians, in the first verse, chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The freedom that God gives us is a freedom from the yoke of slavery to sin and Freedom from the yoke of guilt and shame that weighs us down because of sin. It's freedom, for freedom, that he's actually have set us free. We are to yoke ourselves with Christ. 
And because of a baby, a baby born 2,000 years ago, God's great plan for us, because God chose to take on flesh and be made a man, there is no condemnation. This is the gift of Christmas. This is the love conspiracy revealed. Oftentimes, us preachers like to leave you with three or five points of application that you can take with you, but not today. Today, I want you to receive just this one Christmas present. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me close us in a word of prayer. Lord, as we have celebrated Thanksgiving only a few days ago, there is nothing that we are more thankful for than the freedom that you have given us. Help us, Lord, to live into this freedom, to live as we are truly meant to live, free from condemnation. And for those here this morning that have not accepted you as their Lord and Savior, may you, Lord, work in their lives Reveal yourselves to them so that they can receive this beautiful gift of Christmas, a baby born so that we no longer have to die. We thank you, Lord, for loving us and for redefining the word love for us. Amen.